Welcome to Season 7 of National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And this season is already off to a great start with Emily mocking me in the video screen. (laughs) It was because Aubrey started with, I don't know how I begin these episodes. So (laughs) I would say we're off to a great start on that front as well. Okay, well, you know... This has been the longest break we've taken from recording in a long time, so we just, you know, we're going to get back into the groove with a really good episode today. It is top-notch. Seriously, I mean, y'all, we built National Treasure Hunt on the premise of wanting to know whether the history portrayed in the films was at all accurate and now that national treasure edge of history has come and gone r.i.p we now have an opportunity to deep dive into new history and that's what we're gonna do today we use the term history loosely oh my god uh it's true (laughs) spoiler alert jeez um but before we do that we would be remiss if we did not take this opportunity to admit to you all how national treasure has infiltrated every single moment of our daily lives this is screams from parkington lane Ah! all right em it's been a while you gotta have a scream in the bank for me i do okay um so we have been kind of rewatching The Office in my home um, and uh, came across an, an episode. I, I think it's the episode where Michael dates uh, Pam's mom. But uh, Dwight um, places a, a mallard, like a duck, uh, that's fake with a microphone in it in Jim's office. And uh, to basically just like, you know, spy on Jim. And Jim has a little aside where he basically says like, he's going to make Dwight live out the plot of National Treasure. Uh, (laughs) I like saying random things into it. Yeah, it's great. Wait, that's amazing. You know, I wasn't sure where you were going to go with that because you say ducks and I think, you know, really niche line. Do you like ducks? But like so much more than that. So much more than that. Aubrey, do you have a scream? Yeah, I mean, mine, I think, shows how deep rooted, how deep I have fallen into the Parkington Lane pit because now just everyone around me thinks that National Treasure is my whole personality. Um, So my scream is that this week, my team in my day job, like the the team of people that I work with, um, we have like a team meeting next week and we have like an hour set aside for team building and team bonding exercises since we're still predominantly telework. And so they decided it would be fun if for that team bonding exercise, I put my scavenger hunt developing prowess to use because they know that scavenger hunts are a part of National Treasure Hunt book events and the National Treasure Hunt tour, etc. And so I was tasked with creating a scavenger hunt around our work building for use during team building next week. Wait, that sounds amazing. Yeah, this is, I literally told them, I was like, this is the second scavenger hunt I've created in two weeks. I will have you know. Oh my gosh, I... 
I kind of want to come and do it. I, I would love for you to be there. I'll definitely let you know how it goes. Okay, please, please do. All right, so before we move into our traditional reminder of where you can find us online, we do have one piece of business to get out of the way, and it's a pretty exciting one. If you are following us online, you might have seen that fairly recently, Emily and I announced a very exciting collaboration with Clio. Now, Clio is a woman-owned sensory history company. What does that mean? Well, they research primary and secondary sources from different parts of history and figure out what sorts of scents, like smells, olfactive history, would have been present in those moments, and they turn them into candles. And if there's one thing Aubrey and I love, it is candles. We actually bought a candle together when we were in college. Oh my god, so, I forgot like, about that. Yeah. So I mean it like it's all it's all tied together. Um Cleo is awesome. Um we did a our our the candle that we collaborated on is called In Congress, July 4th, 1776, which, you know, maybe you recognize from the uh Declaration of Independence, that which Benjamin Gates steals in National Treasure. Um, I'm going to kind of leave it at that in terms of what the product is. I really think that you should check out both our website um, and kind of like check out the fragrance notes and everything. Oh my gosh, it's so cool. We had so much fun creating this and there's going to be some extra kind of like bonus content um, for, you know, some of our uh, Patreon peeps. So if you want to order this candle and see what the signing of the Declaration of Independence might have smelled like, you can go to exploreclio.com or you can visit us on our social media and our website, etc. All the information is there. Take it away, Em. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast. You can also find us at ntonpodcast.com. That is where we have information about literally all of the things we do. It's basically everything except for like the daily log activity of Aubrey and I in our like regular jobs. Um, you can also order our book, National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy at tuckerdspress.com. If you have not done that yet, what are you doing? Literally. Please order it. It is awesome. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we will be posting some more bonus content this season on our Patreon. So, yes, we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash Podcast, and we have three tiers that you can support us at. Very reasonably priced and named after the beloved characters from this wonderful film franchise. Wow. Your list of social media stuff just gets longer and longer every season, Em. <laughs> and you cut some stuff out, so. I, I did. I felt like we had to. Anyway, let's get to what we all came here for today, shall we? It is time for us to go back to the National Treasure Hunt roots and do a deep historical analysis of National Treasure Edge of History. If you are... A loyal national treasure hunter, you might recall that back in episode two, yes, you heard that right, literally number two, 
and number 12 of our podcast many, many moons ago, we picked out of the National Treasure films all these different historical points that made us wonder, like, hmm, is that real? Could it have been based on something real? Or is it completely fabricated? And we researched each of them and, and brought our analysis to you on the pod. And that's what we're going to do here today. We're going to start with seven deep dive topics. So these are topics from Edge of History that we felt like were particularly poignant or significant. So we'll spend a little bit more time discussing them. And then we're going to go into eight speed round items. Now, seven plus eight, that's 15 items. Believe it or not, y'all, we could have gone even further and done more topics, but this is going to be lengthy as it is. Just do us a favor and remember that we're working with 10 episodes here. So this is a lot of show to get through. Um, but don't worry. We will remind you the context of each historical item in the show before we confirm, debunk, or correct how it is used in Edge of History. Now, in terms of how we're going to go through these topics, we're going to go in chronological order of how they happen in the show. And like I said, we're going to be skipping some stuff. Some of it is because we deemed it too small and, you know, too nuance or minutia to go into here. And some of them we left out because we will be doing deep dive episodes later on. This includes topics such as La Malinche, the Lewis and Clark expedition, etc. So don't feel gypped. It's coming, y'all. I promise. Oh, it is coming. Okay. So Emily, when we were preparing for this episode, you and I kind of split the items. Um, so I'm really excited to share with you the topics I researched, and I can't wait to hear what you found. The first one, though, on our list in terms of chronology is, dare I say, the biggest historical plot point of the entire show? Yeah. Yeah. So if you couldn't guess, we're talking the Daughters of the Plume Serpent, right? So... I don't know. I feel weird even giving you a reminder of the context because if you don't know how this is relevant to Edge of History, you definitely didn't watch it. But maybe that's good. Maybe you didn't watch it. And that's why we should tell you what Edge of History says the Daughters of the Plume Serpent is. So basically, starting in episode one of the show, uh, we learn from Agent Sadusky. And then later on, I think in episode three, from a recording of Jess's mom um, when she was giving her dissertation defense. Basically, that when Hernan Cortez came to the Americas and waged war with the indigenous people in Central America, Edge of History purports a secret network of indigenous Mesoamerican women had taken a treasure that had been amassed by surrounding Central American empires over centuries. They took this treasure away and, and hid it so that Cortez couldn't find it. Now, according to Edge of History, these women treasure protectors were called the Daughters of the Plumed Serpent. Now, for the record, Edge of History itself can't quite get straight whether this is Montezuma's treasure, something that Sadusky purports in Episode 1, or if it's just the textiles, the arts, the artifacts of the civilizations, which is more in line with Jess's mom's explanation, again, somewhere around episode three. But anyway, what, what Sadusky and Jess's mom do agree on is that the women hid the treasure and then hid clues to the treasure's location in three relic boxes, one box with the Inca, one with the Maya, and one with the Aztec. And of course, the relics were lost over time. Now, 
presumably the treasures were coming from all three of these indigenous civilizations and all three civilizations had daughters of the plume serpent within their ranks part of the story is that la malinche um someone very famous in history that we will cover on a later episode that Malinche was a daughter of the plume serpent, you know, purporting that she worked for Hernan Cortez to keep tabs on the Spanish while the rest of the women were hiding the treasure. And of course, part of this analysis is we can't forget in Edge of History, the daughters of the plume serpent were said to be characterized or like identified by their necklaces, um, which is sort of a like a it almost looks like a star or a sun with like a swirl in the middle you can look this up easily online i do think it's interesting to note that in episode two jess says that her necklace symbol is aztec we're gonna get to that in a minute so that's the story here that's the context it's basically the backstory for edge of history do you think i'm missing anything em i don't think so okay did you real, real curious did you remember the story em <laughs> parts Good for you. All right. Are you ready to dive into this? There's a lot here. I am prepared mentally. All right. I'm going to break this down sort of into segments. This is, like I said, the biggest part of the whole show. So mm, this is probably going to be our deepest dive of the day and the longest. Sorry, not sorry. That's just how it is. So let's start with the concept of the Daughters of the Plume Serpent itself. So prior to and really at the same time as the Aztecs, many indigenous societies existed throughout what we currently know as Mexico, and particularly southern Mexico. These societies were united in a way based on their reverence of a deity called Quetzalcoatl. And Quetzalcoatl's animal representation, like in artworks and in, you know, storytelling, was a feathered serpent. Now, you might ask, these are different civilizations. Um, why would they be united in this belief? And it tends to be thought that this shared reverence for Quetzalcoatl comes from the fact that all of these civilizations were sort of descended from the Toltecs, so a, a older civilization, if that makes sense. Now, legend had it that Quetzalcoatl was the king of Tula in the era of 900 to 1200 AD, but he ended up being banished for reasons that could be a whole other episode. And he ends up migrating throughout southern Mexico, where he encounters various kingdoms who, who welcome him as their patron deity. Now, check it out. Just for funsies, the earliest known depiction, like in iconography, of Quetzalcoatl appears at an Olmec site called La Venta. Wait, I love that. Yeah, right? Isn't that really random? Yeah, like, how? <laughs> I mean, it does make me wonder if... I don't think that the the Wibberleys and, and everyone chose this particular storyline because of this, but I do think that if they found it out later, they'd be they'd be like, oh yeah, that's that's good. We like that. Of course, I mention this all in case you, you are wondering what we're talking about here. The Olmec civilization is important in National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. 
Anyway, it's also worth noting that the Pyramid of Kukulkan at Chichen Itza in Mexico, most people know of the Kukulkan Pyramid, even if they're unfamiliar with it by name. And that's because this is the main pyramid at Chichen Itza. Now, it turns out that that very famous Mayan pyramid is dedicated to the Mayans version of the plumed serpent, which is named Kukulkan. This maybe makes sense as to why Billy and her team accidentally interpreted an early clue in Edge of History as Chichen Itza. Ooh. Yeah, doesn't that make more sense now? Because do you remember that moment? I don't remember which clue it was, um, but there's a moment where they're like, Chichen Itza, we have to go to Chichen Itza. And I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah, like the, these were the connections we needed to spend a little more time <laughs> making for the general audience. <laughs> Absolutely. So now we know why. Um. And this really, as I was doing this research, Em, it really made me realize that Quetzalcoatl was super integral to the Edge of History story. And it would have been great to know that earlier in the Edge of History season, not just in the last few episodes when they throw around the Quetzalcoatl name like once or twice, almost like a throwaway. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to get that too. Like, I can see to some extent it might have been kind of like, we're going to bury the lead a little bit. Hmm. But also then, like, when you start throwing it out, like, or throwing out the name, you need to explain it a little more. <laughs> yeah, it definitely makes the pieces fall into place a little bit better. But anyway, I digress. According to a landmark 2012 exhibit that was hosted by the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, or LACMA, these civilizations, this these civilizations that were all connected in southern Mexico via their reverence for Quetzalcoatl, they referred to themselves as the children of the plumed serpent. Now, I'm going to caveat this. Emily and I are not historians by training. We care very much about researching these things very deeply so that we can all be very confident in what we find. So I do feel it important to note that this exhibition, this exhibition was widely covered online in 2012, but this was the only place online that I could find the moniker Children of the Plumed Serpent it was in reference to this exhibit. But the, the exhibitors, the curators did say, like, they called themselves the Children of the Plumed Serpent. Now, interestingly, this these civilizations, the now we can call them the Children of the Plumed Serpent, were actually able to avoid succumbing to Aztec or Spanish dominance, in part because they established a trade system amongst themselves. And they, they did this by developing like a unified language based on pictures uh, to facilitate this trade. They also arranged amongst themselves and with the Aztecs strategic marriages that served as economic or political alliances. Um, they also shared motifs. So different iconography here. But to finish off the story here of the children of the plume serpent and Quetzalcoatl and these civilizations, I think it's interesting to note that some Spanish accounts claim that Montezuma and the Aztecs welcomed Cortez initially because he was seen as the second coming of Quetzalcoatl, who in legend was supposed to return at some point. What helped to again, according to the Spanish, what helped to facilitate this was the fact that, again, in legend, Quetzalcoatl was said to look a lot like Cortez. 
white guy, bearded, like similar stature, you name it. And the year of his arrival, 1519, coincided with basically when legend said Quetzalcoatl was coming back. Ah, that's pretty cool. But I do feel the need to mention, and and especially because this is Edge of History, and and kind of the whole sub-theme of Edge of History is who is telling the history, right? It is important to note that there is very little evidence of this whole welcoming theory coming straight from Mesoamerican sources. So it is a bit contested, and so we should take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. Now, it is worth noting Because as you know, Emily, one of my biggest beefs since episode one of Edge of History was how are they going to explain away the fact that they depicted a Mayan, an Aztec, and an Incan woman all together in the same place at the same time. Yep. The Children of the Plume Serpent exhibition at LACMA, which is where a lot of really great information is still housed online, it covers a certain time period, right? For like the period of activity, if you will, of the Children of the Plume Serpent. The end of this time period is contemporaneous with some of the Incans' time period in in existence, but no one has ever really asserted that the Incans were part of this network, this Children of the Plume Serpent network, okay? They say the network existed really in Mexico and Central America, all right? So Mm. that's part one of this piece. The next piece has to do with Jess's necklace, okay? Okay. I mean, it's important. It's literally the the, the founding symbol. It, it's important in every episode. You can't argue with me there. You are entirely correct. So what I found here is that Quetzalcoatl was often depicted with a particular symbol. They called it a breastplate. Um, and it has a term in an indigenous language that I, I really wanted to try to pronounce correctly for you all, but I, I honestly feel I would be doing more harm than good in even trying. But ultimately, the word means spirally voluted wind jewel. Now, you can look this up, but the the symbol, if you will, is effectively made by creating a cross section of the spirally part of a conch shell. Oh, Okay. Yeah, and then they, so they would cut the shell and then they would drill a hole in the top so that you could suspend it from a cord, like a necklace, or as they called it here, a breastplate. Now, in history, these shell-based breastplates were placed on statues of the god Quetzalcoatl, or they were worn by very high-status priests who were really considered to be Quetzalcoatl's, like, on-earth representatives, right? Now, not many of these breastplates survived the Spanish conquest. So, like, the ones that you can find in museums are kind of like prized possessions. But if you Google this thing, even if you imagine what this might look like after I described how you would make it, does it sound familiar at all, Em? I mean, yeah. Yeah, it sounds a lot like Jess's necklace. It does. Yeah. Now... Again, Jess did make that offhand comment that her necklace symbol is Aztec, which this wouldn't have been a distinctly Aztec thing, but there's always a but. I'm going to touch it. Okay, we're not in Finding Nemo here, Emily. The but is, in Aztec mythology, there is a god called Sholat, and 
honestly, he's a god of like mostly bad things, like fire and lightning and monsters and sickness. Sholot was the twin brother of Quetzalcoatl, and so he wear- yeah, so he wears the same breastplate. That's good. pretty cool. Yeah, it's good, right? I love the yeah. connections. Um, okay, the last piece of this item that I felt the need to address very briefly is Montezuma's treasure, right? Not only the Sadusky say Montezuma's treasure is at stake in the first episode, and then it never gets mentioned again. R.I.P. Um, <laughs> R.I.P. Sadusky. Spoilers! Um, but we are often talking about what could National Treasure 3 be, and people online have definitely said, oh, what about Montezuma's treasure? So I wanted to answer the question, is this even a thing? So Montezuma's gold does remain largely missing to this day. When the Spanish were forced out of the Aztec kingdom, it was said that they kind of took as much gold and treasure as they could carry and escaped the kingdom carrying as much gold and riches as they could, right? They wanted to steal it because that's what they were there for. Ugh. Anyway... The kingdom was sort of located on an islandy type structure. There was like a causeway, like a land causeway crossing water, which is how they left when they were panicking out. And some people believe that they were trying so hard to escape, they had to lighten their load and dump that treasure into the surrounding waterways. Mm. Now, Cortez did return like a year or so later, but he could never find it. Now, some people believe that if this actually happened, the Aztecs had gone and, like, gotten it out of the water and then done whatever they did with it. Regardless, another theory here is that the Aztecs took their treasure north into what we now consider to be the southern United States after the Spanish left. And then when they got to wherever mysterious location in the States they went to, they buried it. Okay? I am bringing this up for a reason. I assume so. Now, the reason is because at the end of Edge of History, we find whatever treasure our crew finds in the southern United States, right? So you might ask, like, how legit is this theory that the Aztecs came to the United States to to bury their treasure? And I do feel the need to point out that this theory comes from oral tradition over the years. So basically... It is the oral tradition says that as the Aztecs were, you know, migrating upward, they were passing by other indigenous civilizations and those civilizations passed in their tradition, this story of seeing all of these like riches and the treasure, like basically being carried by them. Hmm. Yeah. Now, the most common belief is that if this legend is legit, the secret location where they buried the treasure is somewhere in Utah. Okay. We weren't in Utah. We were not, unfortunately. But that will come up later, if I remember correctly from my notes. So keep that in mind. So ultimately, how do we end? I know I told you this was going to be long, but it's important, right? This is like the crux of the show. Fact or fiction? Was the Daughters of the Plume Serpent plot point? Plot story. Entire story. Entire show. Was it fact or fiction? What do you... And, and to that, I have to say, hear me out, okay? Okay. There was a network of indigenous communities throughout Mexico and Central America, probably called the Children of the Plume Serpent. 
Yes, this is fact. But there is no evidence that they included the Incas, which I would argue is a pretty important point in Edge of History. There's also no real evidence that women from these communities were responsible for the disappearance of Montezuma's and or other indigenous treasures. But if there was such a secret sub-society of this society, it might make sense that they would wear Quetzalcoatl's breastplate, given that this symbol was reserved for really the highest, most important people in society. So I'm going to say, M, that this is fiction loosely inspired by fact. I mean, I feel like you've laid out a pretty solid argument for that point. I have no complaints. That feels valid. I also, not to pat myself on the back here, but I feel like we've re- revealed enough information already in this episode that we could just go home. Well, we could. <laughs> but we're not gonna. Darn it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, do you want to know what the next topic is? It was also one of mine. Um, yes, please. Okay, this next topic comes from episode three. And this is the assertion that Elvis Presley was a Freemason, that he was Cherokee, and that his grandmother was Mourning Dove White. I feel like I remember you not liking this plot point. <laughs> I, I didn't love it, but I hate it even more now. Can I tell you why? Please do. And tell the people as well. I thought this was going to be so easy to research. I thought this was going to be like a very simple Google. For some reason, I thought like, this is so specific. Why would you even make this up? This was one of the hardest things to research in this entire episode. Okay, well, you did a lot of work. So what do you have for us? All right, well. Again, for completeness sake, edge of history context here. Episode three, in the context of trying to find the third relic box thing, Liam says that his grandfather, Agent Sadusky, and his father, Sadusky's son, had at some point gotten their hands on this clue. You ready? A message was passed to the Sun King born to peace. Now, Liam, in revealing this clue kind of just explains it away by saying i guess they got it from the freemasons and it turns out that this explaining the way moment is pretty fortuitous slash essential um because liam then says the sun king could mean elvis because he was the king of rock and roll and his label was sun records and then I'm pretty sure it was Oren, our conspiracy theorist, comes in and says, oh, Elvis was a Freemason. Mm -hmm. And they talk about this picture of Elvis doing this secret Freemason handshake when he met President Richard Nixon. We're going to get to that. And then someone else in the crew says, oh, yeah, and Elvis was of Cherokee descent. And his grandmother was mourning Dove White. And morning, like doves are a reference to peace, and peace was in the clue. Mm-hmm. You don't remember any of this, do you? I remember that actually very well. Oh. Because it had to do with music. Okay, well, it did. So that that's how they teased it out. So I was wondering, there's a lot here again. We're not going to go as deep as before, but what is fact and what is fiction? Let's talk about Elvis being a Freemason, Okay. There is very real speculation and curiosity like in the ether of the world over whether Elvis was a Freemason. But spoiler alert, there is no actual evidence 
of this being the case. You might ask, it's a secret society. Why would you expect there to be evidence? And to that I say, we know of a lot of famous people who are Freemasons, oftentimes because of like Mason Lodge records and things like that. I was going to say, Lodge records are fairly public. Yeah, especially for famous people. I suspect the Masons wanted to like tout when they had a famous person in their ranks, probably. I could be making that up. I would want to do that. So if there's no real evidence of this, what makes people think that Elvis might have been a Mason? There are some reasons. Number one, his dad, Vernon Presley, who I know you're going to bring up later, M. I am. Yeah, so Vernon was a Freemason, and he was tied to a lodge in Memphis. So that's point number one. Okay. But that's not a ton of evidence, right? Like, a lot to go on. So I think what really gets people thinking is that Elvis apparently wore and used a lot of Freemason symbols. I feel like that's, like, not allowed. Like, you... You know how, like, when you're in, like, a fraternity or sorority in college, like, you're not supposed to wear someone else's letters (laughs) if you're not in that? Like, I feel like it's that, but with the Freemasons. I I don't argue with you, dude. Um, The symbols that he, one of the the main ones is that he would wear the Templar cross. Um, And then other people say that, I'm really bad at music, y'all, and honestly, I don't really care about Elvis. Secret. Um, Apparently... He had some like lightning bolt symbol that y'all might be very familiar with that was associated with, I guess, the song Taking Care of Business. I can sing that song in my head, but I'm also not an Elvis person. (laughs) Well, then you're just gonna have to take my word for it. There was this lightning bolt that people say was inspired by the Freemason's emblem of a square and compass. I we just got to go with it because again we we don't know these things so that's symbology all right and freemasons love symbols so there's that and then this i think is probably the the most intriguing to me it was confirmed by a researcher at elvis presley enterprises that elvis like was in possession of and supposedly read a number of books about freemasonry is that going to mean that someday someone's going to think because we did a lot of Googling about Freemasonry that we were Freemasons. Well, I hate to well, break no, it. Well, no, because we're women. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly, like, unfortunately. I'm just saying, it feels like a bit of a stretch. <laughs> okay. I do want to point out, though, that even if we can't confirm Elvis's Freemasonry, it is interesting to me that Elvis's label, Sun Records, was also the label of a famous singer who was a Freemason. Some okay. a guy that again I am not familiar with, but his name was Howlin' Wolf. Banger name. A hundred percent. I think that at least we can agree on. Mm-hmm. Now let's uh let's quickly go into this photo of Elvis and President Nixon doing apparently a secret Masonic handshake. Um I have stared at this picture for many a minute. And it looks like a very normal handshake to me. And I would like to issue a quick call to action to our listeners. Can someone please rewatch this episode of Edge of History and tell me if they photoshopped the Elvis and Nixon photo? Please do. This is reminding me of a New Girl episode. (laughs) Apparently everything does. Where Nick and Jess are arguing 
and he's telling Jess about how he thinks the moon landing is fake. And she's like, it's not fake. And he's like, no, no, the shadows are off. The shadows are off. And she's like, Nick, people Photoshop that so that people like you will believe it. And that's kind of how I feel like we are in this moment. <laughs> well, I'll be honest, y'all. I, I, I care about National Treasure very much. I did not care enough to go find the exact moment that this happened in episode three of the show. So I'm relying on your help. Anyway, it is worth noting, though, that the story of how the actual picture of Elvis and Nixon happened came, like, and came to be, it's pretty weird. So I, I figured I'd share it with you. Um, also, the more I researched Elvis, the more I did not like him. But that's an aside. So Elvis showed up at the White House, uninvited, um, and he had handwritten a letter to President Nixon asking to meet interesting so they did uh this happened on december 21st 1970 you might wonder like why would president nixon drop everything to meet with elvis i mean maybe he was starstruck maybe he like wanted to meet a celebrity you and i have met Catherine zeta jones now em i i get it it makes sense but he, he had this letter to go off you might wonder what what elvis's letter said um and i'm proud to tell you that Elvis claimed in his letter that he wanted to use his position of influence amongst the youth and, and the fact that he was accepted by the hippies to combat America's epidemic of illegal drug use. Um, he also said in his letter that communist brainwashing was responsible for this drug problem. Oddly, I have less of a problem with the second part. <laughs> Then with the first part, just as someone who does research on substances of abuse and substance use and this whole, like, uh, the war on drugs and, like, all of that, just, like, the idea of, like, hippies being the people that are, it, I, I don't like it. <laughs> okay, well, that's the letter. What happens when he actually gets into the Oval Office? Well, this meeting is like kind of shrouded in secrecy. There is only one account of what happened in this meeting, and it was written by Nixon's aide, um, who went by the name of Bud Crow. Apparently, part of Crow's account is that during the meeting, Elvis shared his belief that the Beatles came to the United States and caused a whole bunch of anti-American sentiments amongst the general public and I guess probably the hippies. I mean, I don't particularly like the Beatles or their music that much, but like that feels like a step too far. Now, as part of his visit, Elvis received an honorary narcotics law enforcement FBI badge. This is getting worse and worse. Oh, get this. His former wife, Priscilla, published a memoir called Elvis and Me. And in that book, she writes, quote, with the federal narcotics badge, he believed he could legally enter any country, both wearing guns and carrying any drugs he wanted, end quote. I, again, this is in her memoir. Take it as you will, whether you think it's true or not, but figured that was worth mentioning. And it was also ironic because 
I learned that apparently Elvis saw the prescription drugs that he was reliant on and addicted to as being completely divorced and different from the illegal ones that he was like really keen to tackle as a social issue. We don't we don't have to go into this any further because it could be a whole episode. I just thought it was really fascinating once I found this and had to share it. Um, it turns out the easiest part of this plot point to research was the assertion about Elvis being Cherokee. So <laughs> that feels odd, but okay. Yeah, and then I don't know if you can see in my notes here, there's a really long butt in the middle where things get more <laughs> sketchy. <laughs> So, like, easiest, but also not easy still. Okay. Elvis is thought to have been 132nd Cherokee. And this is based on the fact that his great-great-great-grandmother was Morning Dove White. Now, Morning Dove White, it turns out when you Google, is, like, a very, not popular, because she was, like, a famous name-slash-figure in American history, from our perspective, I think part of this is because she was said to have been instrumental to survival for the white settlers on the frontier. But her whole story is super contested. Okay, this is where that butt comes in. <laughs> oh boy. There's actually no information about her. She what? exists. Everyone agrees she exists. She has a grave marker. Like, but there is no information about her. What I did find was really interesting. There was a 2009 Voice of America article. And this article interviews a genealogy researcher who basically says that Morning Dove would not have been a Cherokee name. So you might ask, like, where did this name come from? Well, to answer this question, I do have to tell you that in 1818, she may or may not have married a white settler named William Mansell in Tennessee, okay? Okay. Mourning was apparently William Mansell's mom's name. And then, like, right. one of their neighbors, was their last name was White. So this genealogy researcher says that either William Mansell renamed Mourning Dove White, because this happened frequently, especially when there were relationships between probably coerced or not or forced relationships between indigenous women and white settlers he either renamed her or she chose an anglicized name but the other weird thing here is that there were no cherokees in the part of alabama where william and morning dove supposedly lived now this genealogy researcher says that the most likely occurrence here especially if she was cherokee would have been that she was a refugee in part of like the Native American like refugee camps that existed at the time and that William Mansell like chose her like took her for whatever reason there's also no evidence that they got married but they did have four children three of whom survived so like I mean like yay in the sense I guess that it gave us Elvis but like <laughs> No. So, pity me, because this was really hard to research. You did great. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, fact or fiction, all right? Well, Elvis probably wasn't a Freemason. Edge of History might have literally photoshopped a famous picture. And, <laughs> and Elvis also might not have been Cherokee. 
but at the very least, he is related to Morning Dove White, whoever she was. So this is fiction based mostly on conspiracy. Top-notch reporting skills. (laughs) Wow. Well, well, well done, Aubrey. (laughs) Thank you. I think you have... I think your your third point actually oh is going to kind of help us like tie all of this together, but probably <laughs> not based on how we've been going thus far. Okay, yeah, so I do have the third topic as well. Um been listening to me talk for a while, but hopefully you've learned something. I was going to say, you can tell that we just like drew lots for these. <laughs> like we basically went through and we're like, I like this one. I want to do this one. But did not think about the order in which they would be presented. <laughs> not at all. Okay, well, mine are going to start going faster now because they got, like, easier to research, okay? Still in episode three, it is purported that the Pueblos and the Cherokees were rumored to have helped the Daughters of the Plume Serpent. All right, so this is a continuation from our previous point. Basically, in her mom's dissertation, Jess read that the Pueblos and Cherokees were said to have assisted the Daughters of the Plume Serpent. Uh, She also says that Morning Dove White, who was Cherokee, must have had a clue from the Daughters and passed it down to Elvis. I'm already noticing a lot of holes here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, again, let's just assume that she was talking about the Children of the Plume Serpent so that we have anything to go off of. Because if not, I would just stop right here and say, yep, Daughters of the Plume Serpent didn't exist, sorry. Um, As we said earlier... The children of the plume serpent extended throughout Mexico and Central America, not the United States, or what we know of today as the United States. The Pueblos were thought to have descended from three cultures within a 7,000-year history. Um, They began as nomadic before settling in the Four Corners region of the United States that we know today. So that would be... Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah. Oh! I told you it would come back. Okay. So over time in history, this is things like natural resource scarcity and conflict around the year 1300 caused these these Pueblo descendants to shift a little bit south to primarily the northern parts of Arizona and New Mexico. All right, so that's who the Pueblos are, a very, very brief history of of their lineage. The Cherokees, on the other hand, initially inhabited Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, and North Carolina. So we're talking very different part of the states. Um, The Trail of Tears, of course, forced them away from these areas into mostly present-day Oklahoma. So now that we're on the same page regarding where the Pueblos and the Cherokees were geographically located, I do feel the need to say it is very hard to fact check a story that is flawed from the get. For example, Daughters of the Plume Serpent smuggling a treasure. That's like a big piece of this plot point. But again, recall, one of the most common legendary locations for Montezuma's treasure is Utah. So the Pueblos would be a possible collaborator in this fictional world, right? Or this legendary world. But recall that Edge of History doesn't actually place the treasure in Utah. They place it in 
Mississippi. Now, this isn't terribly far from Oklahoma, where the Cherokee would have been in 1831, you know, post-Trail of Tears, and also not far from Alabama, where Morning Dove White was, and she lived from the years 1800 to 1835. I just want to say that the amount of, like, reaching that you are doing right now makes me feel a lot better about some of the stuff I have coming up no, I tried really hard you guys I didn't want to say that Edge of History was bull okay Cherokee would have been in Oklahoma in 1831 Morning Dove White was in Alabama in the 1820s 1830s but one more button. This is going to break everything. The Daughters of the Plume Serpent would have hidden the treasure between 1519 and 1521. Oh, between, dear lord. Between the time of Cortez leaving and Cortez coming back. Okay, so no. So the nomadic ancient timeline of the ancient Puebloans is actually the storyline's best hope, but in all honesty, this plot point just cannot be argued geographically or temporally. I really thought we were going somewhere. <laughs> All right. So for the record, fact or fiction? Hella fiction. I honestly wonder why the writers even invoked the Pueblos in the first place when they will never mention them again throughout the rest of the show. I mean, at least the Cherokee mention is, even if it's fictitious, a connection for the, you know, Morning Dove White Point. So like maybe that's why they brought them up. But why the Pueblos? Yeah, there's a lot of, yeah. The only thing I can think of is of why the Pueblos is because of that Utah connection, and they just hope we would go with it. But we don't just go with things here on National Treasure Hunt, people. We don't. Emily, myself, I might go with things in my in my viewing, and I'm sure in my recollection of this conversation 24 hours from now, but in this moment, we do not go with things. No. We research them. So speaking of research, it's my turn. It's your turn, Emily. It is your turn to research another item from episode three, the secret room at Graceland. Should I, should I let you try to explain the context or should I just explain it real quick? Maybe you should just do it, Aubrey. I am happy to. Okay, so once our Scooby crew um, thinks that they need to go find a clue on an Elvis artifact, Oren, again, our conspiracy theorist, purports that something that important would certainly be kept in the secret room at Graceland. Um, and Emily, I have a question for you that I'm hoping you might have researched. I vaguely remember Oren mentioning that Oprah has seen the secret room. Honestly, I don't really care enough about that tiny detail to rewatch it again, but I'd be really curious if that was at all part of your findings. But basically, M, is there a secret room at Graceland? Well, I'm going to answer both of your questions at once. Because okay. when I looked this up, the Oprah thing was the first thing that came up. Huh. So, apparently, Oprah and her BFF Gail got an exclusive tour of Graceland from Lisa Marie Presley, who is Elvis's daughter. Now, this aired on Oprah, obviously when Oprah was still on, in 2006. So, so the, like... They filmed this exclusive tour, is what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Well, yes and no. 
So I'll get into that. So it's my understanding that, yeah, they like Lisa Marie basically invited Oprah and Gail. I mean, Gail just probably came along, but (laughs) invited them to Graceland for the specific purpose of kind of like once and for all being like, is there a secret room? Right. So this was a rumor before this. And so they were literally asked to go there because they were going to be shown, spoiler alert, the secret room, which does exist. Now, what I will say is Oprah and Gail, you know, showed up with a camera crew and the camera crew were actually asked to turn off their cameras as the group was being uh, led to the secret room. So hmm. the secret room is in Graceland, but the like, I mean, it, I did not see anything about Oprah being blindfolded or mm-hmm. anything. So like, I'm pretty sure Oprah knows how to get there, okay. but it is not on film. They did not want that on film. Um, mainly because Graceland is a place that people can visit. Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. and probably to avoid people doing something like they did in edge of history um and going into this secret room so anyway this secret room is said to be in an off-limits room that is deep within the home right (laughs) where elvis once resided that's like the the tagline the room itself is apparently behind a door that is marked employees only Okay. Um, and so no public guests can visit it except, I guess, Oprah. Now, the cameras were allowed back on once they were inside of the room. Oh. And there um, is a lot of stuff there. So basically, this secret room at Graceland contains Elvis's most important possessions, including some items that you need to wear gloves to touch um which yeah (laughs) um so some of the some of elvis's most important possessions are things like rings um sunglasses right he wore a lot of sunglasses also my most prized possession can't live without them yeah um over sixty thousand photographs um basically like all the costumes that he wore uh, there is a specific note of 88 jumpsuits because the jumpsuits were like a signature style of elvis Mm -hmm. when he was on stage um and also like checks that he had signed i i don't know why that's important um but they were there now there is a video on youtube And we are going to link this YouTube video on our uh, social media. And so you, too, can watch Oprah and Gail uh, handle things with gloves (laughs) in Elvis's secret room. Um, Now, something that I, I did want to note here. I literally, I cannot tell you how many articles I saw that were written in like the 2020s, like honestly, some from 2022. These articles had like grabby headlines, basically, that were like the secrets of Graceland that even the biggest Elvis fans aren't aware of. But like, (laughs) if this interview with Oprah where 
literally the con like the content inside of the secret room in mm. Graceland is filmed aired in 2006 Elvis's biggest fans definitely know this exists or yeah let's put it this way if you're a big Elvis fan and you don't know this like are you a big Elvis fan right like I was trying to think of like something national treasure related that like we would say we're really big national treasure fans and something like this right like that would be basically like us being like is there something on the back of the declaration (laughs) of independence like come on man so (laughs) long story short this one's honestly pretty straightforward this is a fact so well done okay um i'm assuming you watched this video i i just took a look as well um this secret room in real life is like a glorified filing cabinet system yeah not really it doesn't it's not let's put it this way it's not sadowski's secret room. <laughs> it's also not the secret room that we see in graceland in edge of history <laughs> it's not so i mean like that part isn't true but there is a secret room there's a secret room it just is absolutely nothing like the one we see in the show yeah yeah okay awesome is it my turn again oh god it is oh god okay it's okay i come again after this okay so my next topic here comes from episode five and this is the legend of la malinche's lost codex slash this idea that she could read and write so as a reminder we get into the secret room we find a golden record and there's a clue embedded into the audio of the record. And the clue is the twin tongued serpent's tail is revealed in fair weather by the bend in the newfound land. Now, Jess assumes um, that actually Jess and Billy both assume independently that Malinche is the twin tongued serpent. So recall that back in our last season of the podcast, Somewhere between episodes three and four, Jess suddenly decided that Malinche kept a secret diary that she hid, even though there's <laughs> even though even though there's no evidence that she could read or write. I just like that you're just just suddenly decided. Do you not remember we had a whole conversation about the fact that we think they literally deleted a scene? Yeah, oh, I know. <laughs> Okay, whatever. Um, Jess also talks to academics in the show who assure her that Malinche could not read or write. Now, again, oddly, Billy came to the same conclusion, which made me think that there could be like a conspiracy theory out there in the real world that Malinche could read and write. Uh, So that was part of the basis for my research on this point. Um, Another part of the basis was the fact that Billy is shown purchasing Malinche's lost codex from an antiquities dealer, um, which was purported to be a Cortez journal that Malinche wrote in, and that journal ended up being a fake. So, out of curiosity, Emily, do you think this was easy for me to research? No, but I'm going to put it, um, I'm I'm going to say that you're not the only one that had difficulty researching because my next point, which is like <laughs> not completely distant from this, is also was also fairly difficult. Okay, okay. Well, you would be correct. This was also hard to research. Um, 
we will do a deep dive episode later on on who La Malinche actually was. This particular fact checking will predominantly revolve around this whole, like, could she read, could she write point. So who, unfortunately, you have to get just the bare bones of who she was to answer this question. Um, Malinche was the daughter of an Aztec chief. And because of this, like, higher status in society, she did have access to education, um, which is how she was good linguistically. That will become important because she was either sold or kidnapped into slavery as a girl, probably as a teenager, and she could speak the Yakutek and Nahuatl languages. Now, these were the Mayan and Aztec languages, respectively. So when Hernan Cortez came into Mexico and took over a Mayan city, La Malinche was one of the young women that was given to him. Um, she ended up serving as an interpreter and a navigator for Cortez. Now, accounts say that La Malinche worked with a Spanish priest named Geronimo Aguilar to translate the Mayan and Aztec languages into Spanish until she could translate directly to Spanish herself. Hmm. Now, there are no known historical accounts written by Malinche herself. Everything that I'm reading here is coming from like Cortez's journals and other Spanish figures here. But everything that I'm finding is only saying that she spoke and she negotiated. Nothing about reading and writing. Which is making me wonder, like the twin-tongued serpent ended up not being about Malinche. It was actually about Sacagawea, but right. Jess's mom's dissertation was about Malinche, but there are no actual clues about Malinche in the whole entire show, right? Except for she shows up at the end again, like her, her picture is in the, the treasure room. Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> uh, yeah. Am I crazy? No. Like there actually weren't any clues about Malinche. It was a false clue. Yep. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure I wasn't forgetting it's something. Weird, yeah, but it's there. We can agree. Or not. <laughs> Who knows? Um, so honestly, that's as far as I'm gonna go with this one, Em. This is my shortest one yet. So fact or fiction? I mean neither, both. It's really hard to say because the Malinche part of the show ended up being kind of throwaway anyway. Like it was even in the show, it was like, could she read and write? We don't know. We bought her journal. Actually, it was a fake. Actually, this clue wasn't about her anyway. So, I don't even know where the show lands regarding whether the show believes that Malinche could read or write or not. So, um, I don't know how to characterize this as fact or fiction. I mean, that that's fair enough. Um, <laughs> I Anyway. Ironically, the you know what you were saying about how you know the twin tongue serpent right ends mm -hmm. up being Sacagawea so you would think cool that th that one's gonna be easier mm. well <laughs> it, it wasn't well well okay but your point isn't entirely about Sacagawea herself your next topic is about the broken word puzzle from episode six and so for as a reminder Jess and Billy and the hench people all examine Meriwether Lewis's journal and they use the clue that I read before, the part that said revealed by the bend, as a hint to basically 
take the strap of the journal and weave it through the holes on the page that houses the only French entry in the entire journal. And it turns out that there are these like markings, these bands on the strap that end up lining up with certain letters when they're woven through these slots. Um, Jess and Billy agree that this is a broken word puzzle and the letters that come out of the puzzle spell Alamo well. So Emily, tell me what's up here. Please tell me that a broken word puzzle is real. I feel like we have such a bad track record in this episode so far. Yeah. Uh could could be. Um what? <laughs> I found nothing of a I when I searched broken word puzzle and I when I say searched, I went deep um i literally was getting like crossword puzzles at one point i got a picture of a word that was broken in half like just like an artistic rendering like it not nothing like this like it was literally like the word like word Mm -hmm. and it was like split in half like (laughs) but not put together in a puzzle just just drawn like that so i was like okay well i gotta f- i gotta find something here. <laughs> you were like aubrey is not gonna let this fly. exactly <laughs> aubrey's not gonna let me just say i could not find anything and i would like to note like i d- i looked as hard as i could i could not find any reference to a broken word cipher, a broken word puzzle, and then I tried to come at it from a bunch of different angles. But before we get into those angles, I will say that if there's anybody listening who is, like, super into puzzles and ciphers and, like, happens to know that this is a thing somehow, like, one, get in contact with us, and two, like, Please tell me your source because, like, <laughs> you must be on the dark web. Like, I, or you went to the library and pulled out a book that has yet to be put on the internet because I could not find it. Okay. So I was like, great. Aubrey, not going to accept that I couldn't find anything about a broken word puzzle. So. Is there, you know, we're, we're talking about Meriwether Lewis's journal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I know this isn't the complete correct interpretation, but I will get there. So I initially was like, okay, Meriwether Lewis, did he do anything with ciphers in his I like, journal? I like right? this. Okay. 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 So from what I found, it does seem that Meriwether Lewis and President Jefferson um took to using coded messages uh during Lewis and Clark's expeditions and this was on the off chance that Meriwether Lewis would need to send information about his expedition back to DC now Jefferson was concerned that i guess people <laughs> would like intercept these messages and like make these discoveries about you know the expeditions that lewis and clark were on before they could which is why he seemed like really gung-ho about the whole cipher thing is this sounding familiar was this not part of i think the 
third book in the Gates Family Mystery Series? Wasn't there like a, a cipher message that was supposed to go from Jefferson to the Lewis and Clark expedition? Yeah, pretty sure. Um, good good so. for Catherine Hapka, that author who wrote those yeah. books. She did a good job. So I was all excited because I saw like Meriwether Lewis speaks in ciphers or you know that wasn't the headline but something <laughs> like that and i was like awesome let's go broken word puzzle it's not um the <laughs> the cipher the coded message whatever you want to call it that um president jefferson and meriwether lewis kind of like pur- were purported to have used is a cipher that I could not find the name for. It seems like Jefferson kind of took a handful of ciphers and like mesh them together. Okay. Interesting. So, this is it it is somewhat similar to a Playfair cipher. I'm not going to go and explain what a Playfair cipher is because we all know how well that went on the episode where uh we covered it. That would be episode twelve. Yes. Go listen to it. Go listen to it, yeah. Or, like, read our book, because th- there's there's one in there. Actually, do that. Do that one. <laughs> TuckerDSPress.com So, um, the cipher, the I'm just gonna call it the Lewis and Jefferson cipher, which is actually a misnomer. Be- I'll explain. Um, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the Lewis and Jefferson cipher um, is similar to a Playfair cipher. Except that the secret password, which is basically akin to the keyword of a Playfair cipher, is basically needs to be repeated again and again on top of the coded message um, in order to decode it. Now, this is different than a Playfair cipher because in a Playfair cipher, you start by writing out your keyword and then you fill in everything else with letters of the alphabet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're already like Playfair light-ish, right? We're, we're mixing things up. You then use a table of the alphabet to solve it. Now, Aubrey, I don't know if this sounds familiar to you at all, but there are these handy-dandy tables of the alphabet where the first row is like a b you know c d all the way across and then the second row starts with b and goes all the way it's across a and it basically right yes Viganair table so okay. i'm like great i know what this is called now it's a Viganair cipher nope so <laughs> <laughs> this is similar it uses the uh Viganair table basically in the sense that it uses the same like alphabet grid but in the uh, Viganair cipher, you actually use, like, the intersection of the rows and the columns in the table uh, to translate the cipher text, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, in the, the Lewis and Jefferson cipher, you a- instead of doing that, you actually go, like, down a column and then all the way to the left side of the table okay and that is your letter so it's not like 
where the column and the row meet. It's mm-hmm. like you find it in the column and then go over and whatever letter is in the row. I'm like, great. So they're using these ciphers, did all that research, still don't know what they're called, not seeming like it's a broken word puzzle. So looking into this further, Jefferson, President Jefferson, seemed to really be the one that was like more into this ciphering. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> There's actually literally no evidence that Meriwether Lewis ever sent Jefferson a cipher from his expedition. So Jefferson went and like made this this thing, wrote ciphers to Lewis like as an example beforehand and and stuff. And then Lewis was just kind of like, yep. So he just wrote regular letters back? Yep. The last documents that uh, were sent from the Lewis and Clark expedition in 1805 were in plain text. So Mm -hmm. just normal. And um, the next time that uh, Meriwether Lewis wrote to the president was in September 1806. And that was on his uh, return journey. Mm -hmm. And that was also in in plain text. (laughs) So after all this, I'm like, okay, great. Is this fact or fiction? I mean, I, I'm still, I'm still like <laughs> Aubrey's not gonna believe me. <laughs> so, I, I have some explanation. This is obviously fiction, but this is possibly based on minor facts, loosely. <laughs> In that one, a system of ciphers were set up between Jefferson and Lewis. It should be noted that there are a lot of gaps in Meriwether Lewis's writings during Lewis and Clark's expedition. There's actually a really good essay that details his supposed lackluster journaling practices. <laughs> um, but the ultimate thought is basically like it. the fact that we don't have this information isn't because he was bad at journaling. It's just because like there are some journals missing. So could this broken word puzzle or even a version of this like jefferson lewis puzzle be in one of the missing journals sure (laughs) now at this point i realized oh hey sacagawea i i should touch on that so i'm not going to get too into that here because we will have more to say in a future episode but from what i've read it doesn't seem like sacagawea was necessarily close enough to meriwether lewis to have actually written anything in his journals which is what edge of history suggests happened Mm -hmm. um like she would not have been able to get close enough from the accounts that i was reading i should say uh since we're talking about sacagawea we're talking about indigenous peoples uh, there did seem to be a contingency plan in place. I get Jefferson, once again, super concerned about <laughs> these things being intercepted. There was like an additional contingency plan in place. And this kind of goes back to what you were saying about the Catherine Hapkin novel, Aubrey, where if communications needed to be moved from Lewis to Jefferson in like a secretive way, urgently. Lewis could recruit Native Americans. Okay, so like this potentially maybe bring Sacagawea back into the fold in very loose manner. Um, Yeah, so 
it's not it's not real um but there i i had a lot of fun it was hard but there's a lot of really interesting stuff here i feel like that yeah. like i want to believe that all of this research was done and all of these little pieces were put together because it, it feels a lot to be coincidental it does make me wonder why they would purport to use a broken word puzzle in the show and not just use literally a Playfair cipher or a Viganair cipher. Yeah. Yeah. It it's weird. Um although I will say um in the Edge of History press box that we got, it we did have um it wasn't a broken word puzzle in the same way where you needed a ribbon to go through things but we did have that piece of cloth i don't know if you remember that we had to fold oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and so that was also part of the reason why i spent so long on this because i was like there's gotta be something here <laughs> um and then just as another note there were ciphers where there were there's like this like leather ribbon kind of that wraps around this tube that sounds kind of right yeah um except we're you know we're talking about a journal not a tube um but the the idea here was that you needed the same size tube every time right to decode this because mm -hmm. if you wrap it around so like if i wrap it around a straw versus a like a poster tube a la nick cage it's gonna give you different interpretations when the letters do match up that sounds like a lot like this. So like inspired by it. What is that called? That is actually called a Skytail uh cipher. It's it's weird. Um this one's really old hmm. is the only thing. Um like ancient times. So you know, I that's why I wasn't super sure about that one just because temporally like sure they could have still been using it but i feel like there were you know better methods by mm -hmm. that point um so anyway interesting stuff okay i think we have one more deep dive topic to go to and this belongs to you as well uh so this is from episode nine uh tasha's grandmother was pearl baker a civil rights activist forced into hiding. So the edge of history context here is that, you know, upon crossing the border back into the United States, Tasha and Oren are detained by the FBI. And remember that Agent Ross is like really trying to get Tasha to trust her, like get her to help, tell her where Jess is, etc. And in trying to gain the trust, Agent Ross acknowledges that Tasha is skeptical of law enforcement because of her grandmother, Pearl Baker, and because of how law enforcement effectively forced her into hiding for fighting for civil rights in the 1960s. Now, um, I gotta imagine this is true. This feels really specific. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to do it. I'm literally so disappointed. Pearl Baker does not appear to be a real person no way i could not find any mention of someone by the name of pearl baker um not even like in civil rights activist like lists of people 
Um, this was another one of those that I was kind of like, I can't, like, I can't just say this isn't a person. Like, <laughs> I, and I didn't trust myself, right? Mm-hmm. I, I was like this, like, it, like you said, it's so specific. So I did a little more digging and I feel like this was a missed opportunity because I do feel like they, you know, a real person could have been referenced in this really important moment for Tasha. But I think this Pearl Baker person could be a reference to one of two people who were important in the civil rights movement in the United States. So uh, the first, uh, her name is Ella Baker. Um, Now, Ella Baker was an African-American woman. She did a bunch of really impressive stuff, including social activism. She really wanted to help develop Black economic power. And she was involved in the NAACP in 1940. And I say 1940 just because I was trying to, you know, make things temporally relevant to the time in which Tasha's grandmother would have been forced into hiding. Mm -hmm. Um, So I looked at what Ella Baker was doing around the 1960s, and it seemed as though she was very involved in helping to organize and coordinate student sit-ins. Um, so she was really involved in like educating about these. She led some of them, was inspired by a lot of them. Um, so really did some pretty cool stuff. No mentions of her ever having to go into hiding. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, well, she has the last name Baker. So maybe. Cool. Sorry, the next one I think is more relevant and possibly more likely to be where Pearl Baker was pulled from. Um, this woman's name is Josephine Baker. I feel like I've heard of her before. It, is she famous? Yes, she oh, is. Okay. I do not know her from anything, but she is um, an American who was a professional dancer, singer, and actress. Hmm. And also, casually, was a civil rights activist. Like, pretty impressive, once again. Um, She was the first African-American woman to star in a movie and perform with a fully integrated cast at um, an American concert hall. And one of her really big things was that she always wanted to do integrated concert performances. So she did integrated audience performances in World War II for actually both French and American forces, which I thought was pretty interesting. And then things got cooler. She was actually part of the French resistance forces where she legit smuggled messages in the words, like in the lyrics of her songs. What? Yeah. So wait, this is giving me this is giving me the the Elvis clue vibes, like putting it yeah. on the record. <laughs> so like this is pretty cool. Um, and I'm like, okay, so if you're gonna base Pearl Baker off someone, let's have it be N- Josephine, right? Like this is awesome. So after World War II, she did return to the U.S. for involvement in the civil rights movement. Now get this in the 1920s so i mentioned she was this dancer she was really really prolific during the the jazz age which is the 1920s 
In the 1920s, she earned two nicknames, one of which was Bronze Venus, Mm -hmm. and one of which was Black Pearl. (gasps) So. It was totally her. I think it might have been her. Now, the only reason, you know, I'm questioning is because she was very famous. So she did not have to go into hiding. Mm -hmm. Like, ever. Also, apparently, and this is not a judgment in any way, shape, or form, but apparently a lot of the acts that she did, dance-wise, were, like, relatively, like, risque for the times. Um, And so I, you know, I don't know if that was necessarily who they intended, Hmm. but the fact that one of her nicknames was Black Pearl. Yeah. Like, pretty cool. So, I fully buy that the production team would have been inspired by a real person. Um, and I could totally see them picking someone famous, but not being able to use their actual name for one of two reasons. Either one, it would seem too weird for this random character to be related to like a famous person like in the story but also number two and i don't know how this works for famous people but like there is a thing in hollywood today that if you are naming a character something there are rules regarding what you can name that character and if there are i don't know the number but there's there's a certain number that if there are fewer than that number of these people living in the world you like actually have to get like legal permission to use that name so like i almost very different than using the name emily right like you're using an actual first and last name so like i also wonder if it was that or Mm. if it was based on josephine baker you know they would probably have to maybe they would have to go to the estate of josephine baker and ask for permission and maybe they said no like there are many reasons why you wouldn't name the character exactly the same name yeah no that's great and honestly that makes me feel like a lot better about this point Mm. um so at the end of the day this was fiction but Mm possibly like you said based on josephine baker a real person amazing okay i I do i feel like we got to a decent place with that one and it's a good thing because we're done our deep dives and we've been talking Mm -hmm. for a while and i recognize that em but i just like i said there's so much to go through in 10 episodes of show that we do have our speed round to get to. So inherently, we're going to spend less time on these. And if I remember correctly from episodes 2 and 12, you like to go all auctioneer on me and be real fast with how you read these. Um, so let's just dive in. I'll I'll give the topic and, and the context and then let's let's go with it. Yeah, let's do this thing. Okay, topic number one. Elvis's favorite guitar was called Ebony Dove, and La Paloma was a non-gold record of his. This is from episode three. Of course, once they realized that Morning Dove White had a clue from the Daughters of the Plume Serpent and passed it down to Elvis, our Scooby gang believes that Elvis hid the clue on or around his favorite guitar, which they purport to be the Ebony Dove because of that dove connection. Later, they learn that this was a misinterpretation and that Elvis instead hid the clue on a recording of La Paloma, a recording that never went gold, but was shown as gold in his secret room. So let's get started with the gold record. 
Yes, Elvis has gold records. No, one of them was not La Paloma. I did look at a full list of all of his records. This was not one of them. I uh, also could not find a picture of the purported gold record, except for the fact that uh, it was an edge of history. Now, as for the guitar, definitely the Ebony Dove was his most well-known and used guitar favorite. Who's to say? It was actually a gift from his father, Vernon, who we mentioned earlier, and it was fairly standard guitar-wise, but Vernon, you know, wanted something special, so he requested a bunch of customizations that I won't go into here, but it is the guitar that Elvis used on stage the most frequently. So, fact or fiction, this would be fact. Amazing. Uh, Number two. The Ben Franklin join or die snake shown in episode four. When trying to break out of Sadusky's clue room, Jess and the very clumsy Riley are trying to figure out the passcode, which means finding items in the room of relevance to the FBI motto. The I, integrity, quote unquote, means completeness and unity, according to our characters. So they find Ben Franklin's join or die snake, which has been modified to have letters that are an anagram. So, Benjamin Franklin was a delegate of the Albany Congress, which were seven colonies, I won't name them here, which met to discuss the threat posed by the French and Indian forces on the British in 1754. A few days before the Congress happened, Franklin was concerned about the recent French military defeat and published an article that included the cartoon, which is the joiner die snake. The idea was that this represented the potential for the collapse of the British presence in North America, hence the snake being cut into eight pieces, symbolizing the British colonies. So is this fact or fiction? This is fact. Though I will say that Benjamin Franklin was probably inspired by a severed snake image he saw in a 1685 book in France that was pictured with the phrase in French, will join or die. Huh. All right. This one is that Sacagawea spoke French and that she was a member of the Shoshone tribe and that the colors of the Shoshone were blue, green, and white. This comes from episode six. What is the context? Well, Jess claims that Sacagawea spoke French and that is why they have to look at the only French entry of Lewis's diary. The bands on the journal strap for that mysterious and apparently not real broken word puzzle, are blue, green, and white, which Jess purports are the colors of Sacagawea's tribe, the Shoshone. Okay, are we ready? Sacagawea was indeed of the Shoshone tribe. In early 1800, she became property, one of two wives, of French-Canadian fur trader Toussaint Charbonneau. Sacagawea and Charbonneau were assets to Lewis and Clark as translators, as Charbonneau spoke Hidatsa and French, and Sacagawea spoke Hidatsa and Shoshone. There are no quote-unquote colors of the Shoshone, but blue, green, white, and cobalt patterns were frequently used in the tribe's art. So, fact or fiction? Shockingly, this is mostly fiction, and this is so puzzling because they literally didn't need to say that she spoke French, and they literally didn't need to make the bands on the strap colored. And they literally didn't need to put a broken word puzzle, which we don't think existed, into this show. Yet here we are. 
I love the speed round. It's so much fun. Okay, next one, Emily, this is yours. This is from episode six. The Mexican town of Viesca was once called the Alamo. Here's our context. After Jess escapes from Billy and is reconvening with Tasha and Oren, she says that the real third box is at the original Alamo. She then goes on to say, this is Alamo, Mexico, a.k.a. the current city of Viesca. As a bonus, the town's well was destroyed when a bank was built on top of it in the 1920s. So, in real life, the Alamo was originally a chapel of the mission of St. Antonio de Valero and was renamed El Alamo when a group of cavalry were stationed there, starting in around 1801 or 1802. Now, these cavalry were recruited from a town called Alamo de Paras in Cahuila, Mexico. And that town is now named, you guessed it, Viesca. So, fact or fiction? Fact. However, I will note, there were no mentions of a well or a well being replaced by a bank. All right. I mean, that would have been pretty specific. That would have been cool, though. Anyway, next point. This one's mine. This is from episode eight. There is a quote that the one thing the Aztecs, Maya, and Incas had in common was a mastery of the stars. More specifically here, when the secret relic boxes are disassembled and used to construct a map, the map is of the Milky Way. Jess and her newly rediscovered father, Raphael, decide that this makes sense because, quote, one thing they had in common was mastery of the stars. <laughs> well... The Mayans, Aztecs, and Inca all built structures and entire cities based on the orientation of stars and planets. The stars, the moon, the sun, and the planets were associated with their gods. Astronomy also dictated how they did their agriculture. Now, interestingly enough, this is totally not relevant to Edge of History, but I thought it was really cool, so I'm going to say it anyway. The Incans found constellations not only in the presence of stars, but also in the absence of stars. How wild and amazing is that? So... Is this fact or fiction that the one thing they had in common was a mastery of the stars? I mean, sure. Let's go with fact. We need it at this point. I love that way you delivered that, but also the fact that stars was so prominent in there. And when you started the second sentence of your like speedy bit, you paused on stars <laughs> as if like you couldn't get that out fast enough. Okay, okay. Aubrey. I think the next one is yours, too, and it looks like there are some uh, pronunciation uh, things you need to be careful of, so best of luck doing this quickly. Oh, may the force be with me. <clears throat> this is from episode eight also. The assertion that Quetzalcoatl was associated with Venus, god of the morning star. What is the context? Well, in practically the same breath, in the context of the star map of our previous speed round point, Justin Raphael mentioned that Quetzalcoatl, god of the morning star, was associated with Venus. Well, Quetzalcoatl was indeed considered the god of the morning star and associated with the planet Venus. In Aztec culture, he was also associated with wind, the sun, merchants, arts, crafts, knowledge, and learning. So fact or fiction? Yep. I mean, this is fact. Good for them. Good for them indeed. All right, Emily, you're up again. This is the Devil's Swamp from episode eight. Jess uses a star app because technology and 2023 to interpret the Milky Way map. The app tells her that the location that would produce that particular orientation of stars and planets is Devil's Swamp located outside of Vicksburg, Mississippi. Throughout the remaining scenes, there are assertions that this swamp is covered in thick fog, that Hernan Cortez lost men in the swamp, 
that it's easy to get lost there. There's no cell service there and basically everything else unpleasant you could possibly imagine. Go. Well, in real life, the Devil Swamp is a very toxic swamp. It is also called Devil Swamp Lake, which seems like too much. It is 10 miles from Baton Rouge near the Mississippi River. Apparently, there are a lot of cancerous toxins that were found in the water in 1993. And over time, warnings about the safety of the water have progressed from, quote, don't eat too much fish from the lake to, quote, warnings over something as simple as touching the water. Uh, Factor fiction, um, I would buy the fog thing with all (laughs) the the toxins. All right, Emily, we've gotten to the last one. We've made it, and it is mine, okay? This comes from the finale of Edge of History, episode 10. The Aztecs apparently trusted Huitzilopochtli, which means left-handed hummingbird. Well, in the Devil's Swamp, Jess and her, once again, still newly discovered father, Raphael, come across a fork in their road once they've escaped from Billy and the hench people, and they choose to go left because the, quote, Aztecs trusted Huitzilopochtli, which means left-handed hummingbird. Well, Huitzilopochtli is the Aztec god of sun and war. The meaning of his name is still subject to some tweaking, but there are two distinctive elements here. One is hummingbird, and the other is left-hand side. It is often translated as left-handed hummingbird or hummingbird of the south, but it could also be the left or south side of the hummingbird. There's nothing here that I could find about them trusting this god, but I guess you would trust your god. So fact or fiction, I'll give them fact on this. Let's give ourselves a metaphorical round of applause. Uh, that was that was a wonderful speed round. I don't know. I feel like we should just do the history episodes as all speed round points. It would definitely be funnier, but like... I don't would... know how much information people are retaining from the speed round portion. <laughs> True that. Okay, well, yo, dude, we have been... You know, breaking. Let's break the fourth wall here for a second. It is almost 10 p.m. at the time that we're finishing this recording. We've been online today since 6:30 p.m. Mm. So there's that. But in in an effort to not just abruptly end here, I do want to spend just one moment in wrap up, briefly reflecting on this exercise today, specifically like how well or how poorly do we think Edge of History did in capturing real history especially in comparison to what we remember from how national treasure and national treasure Two, like the films did not well like if there were points so i agree i feel like we found a lot of really interesting connections in the movies that were really really unexpected the way i assess this one this is actually pretty interesting When Emily and I, this is for the benefit of our audience, when we sit down to create the template for these history episodes, we list out all of the historical points that we think are are significant enough to the plot for us to go into. And how we determine which ones are deep dives and which ones are speed rounds is based on how important these points were to the actual plot. So the speed rounds are usually like throwaway comments that happen in the show or they're not super integral to the plot. So we don't feel the need to go as deep into them, which by proxy means the deep dives were super important at some point to the plot. I don't know if you noticed this, M, but it seemed like the majority of the deep dives were the ones that were 
most based on fiction or conspiracy theory. And it was those more throwaway or speed round type topics that had the most fact to them. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and you know, part of me is now wondering if the reason that we felt that the history was so accurate in the National Treasure movies themselves is possibly because it was based on primarily American history, meaning that not only was it like a little more recent in a lot of respects, but it also was about a group of people who are studied and documented very Mm. frequently. That's a good point. Whereas a lot of the things that were focused on in Edge of History had to do with indigenous peoples. And unfortunately, due to the way that, you know, society functioned back in the day and even still today a little bit, those things are not documented as well. And I'm wondering if that played any role in our, like, not only our inability to, like, find the history in this, but maybe if it also presented, like, a little bit of a challenge for the writers. That is a phenomenal point. And exactly where I think we need to end this conversation today. So let's wrap it up with a reminder of where you can tell us if you, you know, did your own deep dives and found any information that we're missing or tell us what you learned from this episode. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. Go ahead and find literally everything about us at nthuntpodcast.com. And please go ahead and check out our Patreon. Yes, so definitely go do that and then come back for our next episode, the second episode of this season. It should be really fun. Um, We're actually going to be comparing National Treasure to other Nicolas Cage films. So something tells me you are quite literally not going to want to miss that. But until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. Thank you.